Well, good morning. You could take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts. Our text this morning extends from verse uh, 16 of verse, uh, to verse 31 of chapter 17. So Acts chapter 17, we're going to go from verses 16, or recovering the, the episode, uh, recorded uh, from verse 16 to well, actually the end of the chapter. And as you turn there, um, boy, what a great time it's been already this morning to uh, celebrate and dedicate together these, uh, these little lives uh, coming into our, the life of our church to sing together. Uh, you know, the, the songs that we sing, you can tell, uh, are carefully chosen to center around Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. And uh, we like a mix of, of new and old. The one we just sang there is one of the older ones, right? And it could be that you've sung that song a lot, especially that first verse, and you have still no idea what you're singing. Not be all else to me, save that thou art. Uh, you think it'd be a good idea for us to actually understand what we're singing when we sing that first verse? Um, that word not, N-A-U-G-H-T, is an old word meaning nothing. Um, and pretty what it is saying is this, God, don't be anything else to me besides what you already are. Really what it's saying is, God, you are more than enough. You are all I need. It's just a very powerful way of saying, if you are any different than what you are, it wouldn't be good. So be nothing to me except what you are. Um, that is, is really expresses the essence of a Christian's delight, and that is in the person of God, apart from God's gifts. Yes, God's gifts are amazing. Yes, we thank him for what he's given us. But our ultimate satisfaction and delight is found in who God is for, for himself. That's what we're singing when we sing that first verse of Be Thou My Vision. That wasn't the sermon. It wasn't anything to do with, well, I guess it, I wasn't prepared as the sermon. But our sermon is uh, from Acts 17. We're in a series uh, through this book. If you're visiting with us, uh, so glad that you're here. Uh, you're, you're jumping right in uh, to, uh, a, I, I think, a pretty aggressive ser uh, sermon series uh, through this, the book of Acts. I want to direct your attention to verse 20. And these are the words of the Athenians. The Apostle Paul has arrived at the ancient and prestigious city of Athens. And uh, the, the Athenians are saying this in verse 20. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Uh, I find in that verse an amazing challenge and opportunity that faced Paul back then in the first century and that continues to face us now. And the opportunity is this, to present the Christian message to people who really want to understand what it means. That's the opportunity. The challenge is, as they're saying, it sounds strange to us. We, we need some explanation. You, you see the challenge and the opportunity there. The opportunity is, here's a chance to give the essence of the Christian message to people who actually want to understand it. The challenge is, how can we communicate it? Um, now, you know how hard it is to communicate even to people who want to understand you, who share much of the same um, mental real estate as you do. I mean, you, if you're married, a spouse, or, or if you live with parents or children, I mean, you're looking at that person that you love, say your spouse, and you're thinking, I do not understand what he is thinking. I do not understand what she is trying to say. And you're looking at each other, and you're like, I love you. I just, 
I don't understand. Or, or you're, you're, you're talking to your parents or to your children and you want to understand, but communication is hard. Now, if communication is challenging among people who share the same spaces and want to understand each other, can you imagine how much more difficult it is to communicate in, in a cultural environment which people occupy like vastly different galaxies when it comes to uh, the, their, their values and, and priorities? How in the world can the Apostle Paul, who grew up in a Jewish background, has come to believe that a man from Nazareth named Jesus is actually the anointed Christ who's going to judge all the earth? How in the world can he communicate this message to the sophisticated, cultured philosophers in Athens? Now, I think the thing that's important for us to realize today is that you and I, living in 21st century American culture, are living in an increasingly similar uh, idea ecosystem or a cultural uh, system that, that Paul lived in in the first century. Ameri 21st century American culture is looking more and more like first century culture. And, and I'll just point out a few respects in which it does. First of all, first century Greco-Roman culture was polytheistic. And you might think, well, that, we're not polytheistic. We don't have idols and, and altars to unknown gods. Well, um, that, that's true, but we live in a pluralistic culture, which means there we affirm, our culture affirms many paths to find ultimate meaning and satisfaction in life. That's functional polytheism. Uh, another Another comment on our, 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 how our social structure is looking more similar and similar to the Greco-Roman culture of the first century is that there is an increasing disparity between the rich and the poor, the powerful and the weak, and there was a massive disparity between those things in uh, Paul's day, between those people, the demographics there in Paul's day. And there's another way in which our culture right now is looking more uh, similar to that of Paul's day, first century um, Rome, the Roman Empire, is that we are increasingly, or I should say decreasingly, biblically literate, which means people don't understand the themes of the Bible. Now, when Paul would come to a city in the Roman Empire, the first place often he would go to was the synagogue. And you know that the synagogue was a, was a place where the Jews would gather. And the reason why Paul's delivery of the Christian message was so different in the synagogues was because he could assume a shared set of values because his audience were reading, was reading Genesis through Malachi. So all he had to do was draw upon the prophets and the law to prove that Jesus was the Christ. But when he comes to the city of Athens, they're not reading the Bible. They don't, they don't know about the prophets, or at least if they've heard about them, they know very little of them, or they don't buy into the, the worldview that the, Paul's Jewish uh, contemporaries would have bought into. So the question is, how does Paul communicate the Christian message in an environment that is so radically different? And, and that's relevant today, to us today, because we have a responsibility. As, if you're a Christian, you want to share the Christian message. You want to share the good news about Jesus with people who don't share some of the same assumptions you do. And if you're not a Christian, I believe that you really want to understand what the Christian message is. And from this passage that we read, we can learn from how the Apostle Paul communicated the Christian message in a culture that did not understand it. Paul presents an important example of how 
to communicate the Christian message to all kinds of cultural backgrounds. And I think the best way to do this in this passage, I just want to admit, this is one of my favorite passages in all the book of Acts. In fact, it was so, my fa- so much my favorite that I felt nervous. I felt nervous all week preparing this, this sermon because I, I didn't want to blow my favorite passage. You know, how I, I didn't want to. But I, I think the best way for us to look at this and to see how Paul sets an example for us to share the Christian message in an environment like our own is to see Paul's heart, Paul's head, and Paul's mouth. Okay, by that I mean um, what Paul felt, how Paul thought, and what Paul said. Okay, so we're going to look at these, these uh, three uh, aspects of Paul's presentation of the gospel. So first of all, let's look, at what, let's look at Paul's heart, okay, what Paul felt. And we see this in verse 16. It says, now while Paul, Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city, that the city was full of idols. Okay, I want to focus on that word provoked within him. His spirit was provoked within him. That's something he felt within himself. Um, Now, the word that's translated provoked, we get the English word paroxysm from it. Now, you may not be familiar with that word unless maybe you're in the medical field. Uh, Paroxysm has this idea of uh, convulsive attack. Uh, You know, you're, you're... your muscles are having a spasm. In fact, it has the word for sour wine right in it, okay? So the, the, the word for sour wine is right in this word that's translated to be provoked, and it indicates the kind of thing that goes on your facial muscles when you bite into something really sour, like a lemon or something, okay? You know, I hope that you dads have never done this to your, your baby when they were really little, but stick, putting a lemon in your, your, the baby's mouth, I mean, will, will provoke a, a reaction um, on that, the face, it's just like the, the, the forehead wrinkles up, the mouth twists and convulses, and it's just this, this reaction to the sourness of it. Uh, that's, except for what, what Paul was experiencing was a, a heart convulsion. It wasn't a facial convulsion. Uh, we can put it this way. Uh, his heart was ignited. All right, his heart was ignited. Um, now, some people have said, oh, this was a terrible thing that Paul's heart, that Paul's spirit was provoked within him. Uh, because in most contexts, the word translated provoked is a negative thing. But I would have to push back on that uh, objection a little bit for, for a number of reasons. First of all, the same word that's translated provoked here is also translated provoked in Hebrews chapter 10 when it says we're, so st- we're supposed to provoke one another to love and good work. So there is a positive connotation of this word translated provoke. This idea of heart ignition can be a positive thing. And the other reason why I think that this is a positive thing, that Paul's spirit was provoked or his heart was ignited within him, is what followed. If you look at the text, you see he was, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was full of idols. So what did he do? Uh, you, would, you might expect, oh, if this guy has just had this, has this spirit convulsion within him, then the next thing he's going to do is go into some slobbering tirade against idolatry. But what followed the heart ignition? It wasn't a... Um, a cascade of angry words, it was reasoning. You you see that? He says, says, so he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons, and not just with the Jews, 
and in the marketplace every day with anybody who happened to be there, including the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers that we're going to meet a little later on. So you see, what happened as a result of this heart ignition, this convulsive response, convulsive response to seeing idols in the city, was Paul reasoning his way through the good news about Jesus. Okay, so we've identified that heart ignition, I've defended that heart ignition, but now let's ask the question, why? Why was Paul's heart just ignited within him. Um, if you put yourself into Paul's sandals, uh, you realize that Paul was, okay, first century Jew. Uh, he had memorized vast portions of the Old Testament, much of which uh, is an extended condemnation of idolatry. And the Jewish, pe Jewish people of that day, I mean, they were, they tended to be very ethnocentric. This is the Jewish way, monotheism, the, the Shema of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one Lord, and you shall worship only him with all your heart and soul and mind, mind and strength. So Paul was steeped in this strictly monotheistic environment. And it could have been that when he came into the, uh, the city of Athens, he sees an idol there, and he sees an altar there, and he sees an idol there. He could be like, that is so un-Jewish. That is so unlike me. So the question is, but, but clearly that was not what provoked Paul. Why did Paul have a heart ignition? Why did Paul have a spirit provocation? Well, let me ask you this question. Why does anybody have heart ignition? Why does, what tends to spasmodically convulse people's spirit? Let me just lay this down as a fact of human nature. Whatever touches the center of our heart's affection will ignite our heart. I mean, whatever touches, whatever your heart has, has been captured by, entranced by, whatever, you, whatever beauty, whatever glory has won you over, if that gets touched, it's going to ignite you in some way. That's how heart ignition happens. So for example, if you, if you like the United States of America, and this afternoon you're going to go, you go downtown, and you see a group of people burning the American flag, it's it's hard to, it's hard to imagine any American who hasn't had some love for his country not being not having some heart convulsion about something like that. Or if today's Mother's Day, if you love your mother. Uh, your, your mother has in some way captured your heart's affections. And you, you see a photograph on the sidewalk, and you think, oh, somebody littered. You pick it up. It's like, that's a picture of my mom. But someone's like drawn horns on her head and made her ugly and written profanity across. I mean, you, you, you go from being irritated by, by someone littering to being like, in, enraged by who would do this? Why? Because if, if your mother or if your country or if anything about you has ever been captured by, by, the be by beauty or, or goodness or, or truth, then if that thing gets touched, it's going to result in heart ignition. That, that's how any heart gets ignited. So why did Paul's heart, what was it that ignited Paul's heart? It wasn't, oh, this is so un-Jewish. <clears throat> it wasn't, oh, this is just so counter my culture. The thing that touched 
Paul's heart was the thing that had captured the deepest part of him, and that is he had been captivated, entranced by the beauty of King Jesus because King Jesus was the one that had released Paul from the the shackles of his own self-righteousness. And when Paul looked around at the city of Athens, he saw that people were being chained to or captivated by things that could not liberate them, that had liberated Paul. The, The reason why Paul experienced this spirit convulsion, his heart, his spirit was provoked within him, was because something had captured Paul's heart. And it was the beauty of his King Jesus. Now, what does this have to do with communicating the gospel? And it is this. Unless your communication of the gospel is ignited by your affection for King Jesus, and if it's it's ignited by something else, what will come out will be the wrong thing or in the wrong way. For example, let, well, let me just ask you this by way of application. What is that deep heart level glory that drives the emotional force behind your attitudes toward American culture today? Paul's, Paul's in a culture, it's foreign, foreign to his own. He was ignited, but let me, let's ask ourselves this. What is that deep heart level glory that drives the emotional force in your attitude and my attitude toward American culture today? Is it the glory of a more conservative America? Is it the glory of what has been or what could be? Granted, there are some glorious things about our country, but there is no glory in There is no glory of any earthly kingdom that can free anyone from the bonds of sin and death. That is a glory that belongs to King Jesus and King Jesus alone. If your heart is chained to anything else, my friend, what will come out? You may be a staunch culture warrior, but you will not be an effective soldier for Jesus. And it it goes with, it, it can be a, it can be a, a, an American cultural thing. It could be anything. It could be something like, have you ever wondered why when, when someone criticizes you about something that is like really close to something you value dearly, it doesn't just irritate you. Maybe it just devastates you. Maybe it just absolutely causes you to implode if you hear a critical remark about something about yourself. Have you ever asked yourself, why does it do that to you? Could it be that the glory that that has captured your heart's affection is what image you would like to project for other people to buy into of yourself, and when they're not buying into it, you feel like there's a heart convulsion going on? What if you were to attach your heart's affection to something that could never be diminished, that could never be, that could never lose its glory? You see, again, I lay down this as a as a fundamental law of human nature, that our hearts will be ignited by whatever has captured our affections, our heart's affections. Okay, so this was, um, this was Paul's heart. Okay, so now let's, 
this is the whole idea of Christian communication. How do we communicate the gospel? Right, we have to make sure that, first of all, our hearts are ignited by the glory of King Jesus. But there's also something going on in Paul's mind. That is how he thought. And, and what he thought, the way Paul thought, is indicated in the things that he said. Um, and you can see here in verse uh, 17, he reasoned uh, in the synagogue. Um, he, it says that he was... Uh, conversing in verse 18, the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and they were saying, what does this babbler wish to say? The word translated babbler was a, uh, referred to a, a seed-picking bird, and they, they thought that what Paul was was kind of a, um, an amateur dabbler in different ideas uh, that was just trying to spread, uh, spread different random ideas, but they really doubted that there was any uh, intellectual robustness to what he was saying and so they 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 felt like they they would have him but they were curious enough that they invited him to speak uh, at the Areopagus now what Paul does here is very interesting and I think this is something that we that we should learn from in his approach to dealing to presenting the Christian message to people who did not share his cultural assumptions and here are the moves he makes and there, there are basically three three moves here and that is to affirm challenge and fulfill okay and i'll walk through these things you have affirmed challenge and fulfill first of all he affirmed <clears throat> their seeking after god <clears throat> he affirmed that again what would you expect from a jew who was visiting athens you would expect someone to be enraged by the adultery and yes there is much to be enraged by that but but that was not paul's first tactic <laughs> you see Sometimes, and this, this is the way that we, we can either end up going in one of two different directions. We could say, on the one hand, there is so much in our culture that is anti the values of Jesus that our stance toward culture is to look for everything in culture to attack. In, in, in this case, the cross of Christ becomes little more than a club to beat up the culture with. On the other hand, people say, well, there is so much in our culture to, to affirm. In fact, what Christianity in people, many people's minds is, is simply a, all of current American values with a cross decoration on it. But Paul takes neither approach. The first thing he does is to affirm their seeking after God. And I'll show you in a while why that was, is, in his setting, much more uh, powerful than if he had started the other way around. You see this, and in, in he, um, he, he affirms their, their religiosity. Look at verse 22. He, said, he says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, uh, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. And then he, he demonstrates why, how he knew that they were religious. For, as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Paul says, you are so religious. Not only do you have um, gods, uh, statues to uh, Eris, Athena, Hermes, Zeus, uh, these, different, um, these different gods and goddesses who made up the Greek and Roman pantheon, but just in case you miss anybody, here's an altar to the one you might have overlooked, uh, the one who you might have missed somehow. And, and you, you guys are so religious. Now, what Paul is affirming in the first century is something that you and I should be wi willing to recognize all around us and within us, even if you don't 
consider yourself to be religious. Uh, and even though, some of you have done some reading this, even though the, the Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens or Daniel Dennett type, these, these uh, anti-theist theist type, have said there is no rational way anybody can believe in God, functionally, they don't live that way, and the vast majority of people don't, don't live that way or believe that way either. I think our, our poets and playwrights uh, put it much better when they see, say things like with Bob Dylan, you got to serve somebody. Or David Foster Wallace, everybody worships. This is the shape of the human heart. And the reason why Paul could, in this, in this setting here, affirm that everybody was seeking after God in their, in their own way, the reason why he could say, yes, this is true about you. You're, you're reaching, you're, you're, you're stretching out your hands towards something divine, something beyond you, something transcendent, is because Paul knew from Genesis chapter 1 that God had created every human being in his own image. That is, he had stamped within their heart an image of the divine so that we, the beings that we are, we are constituted to have some kind of vertical relationship to reach to something above and beyond and, and below and greater than us. This is just simply undeniable fact of human nature. This is what our hearts tell us. This is what our poets and playwrights tell us. This is what, even despite the denials of people who want to argue against the existence of God, this is what they betray in their own thoughts. And we find this in very um, amazing places. For example, some of you may be familiar with the, the great American composer Leonard Bernstein, one of the most important. If you're into music, you might be familiar with him. He, in an interview, he said some amazing things about our impulse toward God, even in music. Uh, and and it, in the context, he was arguing for um, Beethoven. Okay, so he loved Beethoven. Maybe you're into Beethoven, maybe not. But, but uh, Bernstein thought he was, he was the greatest. So he said, Beethoven turned out pieces of breathtaking rightness. Again, uh, he's in an interview, so he's replying to a question. Rightness, that's the word. It's when you get the feeling that whatever note succeeds the last is the only possible note that can rightly happen at that instant. In that context, then the chances are you're listening to Beethoven. He has the real goods, the stuff from heaven, the power to make you feel at the finish that something is right in the world. There's something that checks throughout. There's something that follows its own law consistently. There's something that we can trust, something that will never let us down. And his interviewer said at that point, it's almost a definition of God. And Bernstein said, I meant it to be. See, even in music, the inevitability of the notes, the deep order, stirs within our hearts some transcendence, pointing to, some, uh, pointing to something that is, that could, that is, is beyond ourselves. But, but I find this also in very unlikely places. Recently, I was reading a book by... Uh, a biologist and professor at the University of Chicago, uh, Jerry Coyne, and this book is called Why Evolution is True. Um, but I was very fascinated by something he wrote about evolution that sounded so religious. He said, Darwinian evolution can, I quote, transform us in a deep way, show us our place in the whole splendid and extraordinary panoply of life, Unite us with every living thing on earth today and myriads of creatures long dead. He said, I wrote this book in the hope that people everywhere may share my wonder at the sheer explanatory power of Darwinian evolution. It sounds like he's, he's not just seeking to convince the minds of people. He's seeking to capture hearts. 
You see what's going on there? There is something, there is a, there's a transcendence that he's getting at. And, and just like we can see this in the culture all around us, Paul looks at the Athenians, he says, you're trying to worship something. There's, there's, is a God, there seems to be some God-shaped vacuum in the whole of every human being that they're, they're in fact, in verse, um, look at verse 26, he says, He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each of us. Now, some people would say, well, this is a, this approach here, I mean, don't, w- at what point are you going to condemn the idolatry of the people in the, the, the culture that you're speaking to? And, and the, the problem is with, with people that are looking out into the culture to try to find everything wrong with it, is that every once in a while, you're going to find someone or something, you're, as a Christian, you're going to find someone that doesn't believe in Jesus that lives a far more moral life than you do. Or you're going to find someone who is a much better dad or more loyal husband or a a harder worker than you are. And if you think that somehow, oh, I guess that invalidates everything, that somehow, oh, I guess that invalidates everything I'm trying to say, maybe it's because the gospel, maybe it's because the gospel is more about getting someone to bump up a little higher on the morality scale. Maybe, maybe what we need is not just to scale ourselves up a little bit, but maybe what we need is a radical change that can be described in no other terms than things like new birth, a regeneration, or a new creation. This, and in fact, this is what the gospel brings. That's why Paul's first step in his conversation with the Athenians is to say, you are very religious. You are seeking after God. It's true. But his next move is to say, but all your goodness, goodness, all your reaching out after God is actually going in the wrong direction. It, you, you, it, is, it is no danger for, for anybody to affirm the highest level of morality, morality and the standards of ethics anywhere and to see the truth because every human being is stamped with God's image and we could find God's truth everywhere. But the problem is it's taking them in the wrong direction. Paul says, and, and what, the way Paul does this is he points out a, a contradiction, a fundamental contradiction in their worldview. He says, if you indeed believe, and he quotes a couple of their poets, if you indeed believe that in him we live and move and have our being, and if indeed you believe, as is true, that we are indeed his offspring, okay, then, then we ought not to think that God is such a being that we can contain. What he's doing is this. If you believe A, shouldn't you also believe B? It's, this is true over here, but if this is true, then why not believe this? If, if you believe that God is the source of us all and we live and move and have our being, then why do you think he could be represented by things made out of gold and silver and idol? You know what? We see these kinds of things in our culture all the time. We see things in our culture where people have gotten some kind of truth, but they've turned it, they've, they've, they've wrenched it in a different direction, and we can say, yes, you're right about that. But since you're right about that, wouldn't you want to be right about this too? I'll give you some examples. One common narrative in, in our culture 
is this, this idea that you have to bestow dignity upon yourself, define your own goodness, um, that no one can tell you, uh, no one can tell you who you are. You define that for yourself. All right, is that a pretty common idea here? In fact, I, I've been struck with the amount of books and articles and stuff that I've seen that coming out recently that talking about, talking to people saying, you are enough. You are enough. Don't let anybody tell you you're insufficient. You are enough. And so this idea is that we have to bestow dignity and meaning and identity on yourself, and no one else can deny that. Now, as Christians, we could say, of course, of course people have inherent worth and dignity. But why add the second part, and no one can deny that, and I could define it for myself? This is the, the ironic thing about this is this. If you are really that self-sufficient, if you can really define your own identity and value, then it shouldn't matter whether other, others recognize that or not. If you can really, if, if you were really that valuable, if you could really bestow meaning and satisfaction yourself, then you wouldn't really care whether other people think so. But there is, on the other hand, such a desire to be affirmed in our own identity, in our own sense of self-worth. Could it possibly be that what you're reaching for is an affirmation from someone who would love you unconditionally? Could it be that you cannot bestow meaning upon yourself, but that meaning and dignity can only be bestowed on by your creator? See, this is, this is why if you believe this, wouldn't you also believe this? But isn't that what the gospel teaches us? That anyone who believes in Jesus Christ as his or her king and savior, God treats as, as fully accepted. Just like he said to Jesus, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. All of us have a craving for someone to look at us and say, you are my son or daughter in whom I am well pleased. Where are we going to get such affirmation? Only in the message of the gospel. Another, another idea that's so common in our culture is that we can, we can define what will satisfy us, that, that freedom is, fr is freedom from restraints. I, I've come across talks and conversations where people say, um, here's how to get anything you want. Uh, here's how to be free. Here's how to break the mold. And yet, how are we supposed to know what we want? How often have our wants been actually what has enslaved us instead of freed us? You see, what Paul did was say this, what you have been searching for in the wrong direction I'm going to tell you about. What you worship in ignorance, this altar to the unknown God, I proclaim to you now. And this is where we learn from Paul's mouth. That is what he says. So what Paul felt, he had a heart ignition that was stirred by the glory of Christ. He had a mind that was expanded by the truth of the gospel that allowed him to affirm the goodness of God that he saw everywhere and the truth of God that he saw everywhere, yet also see that it was turning people in the wrong direction and see here's what you really are going for and I'm about to tell it to you and that is where we learn about what Paul said. And we read this, his, his, uh, the heart of his message is actually in verses 30 and 31 where he says this, the times of ignorance God overlooked 
but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You see, Paul here is following the, the typical moves, the typical points of the gospel, and that is to proclaim this. Something has happened. Something new has happened in history you can't deny, and that is someone who is dead came alive. Now, what that means is that this one who has now come alive is the one that God promised would one day judge all the earth. And what that means for you, if it's true, and it is, is that you must break off allegiance to whatever has captured your heart's affections and dominates you and swear allegiance to this one and this one only because he is your Lord, judge, and king. What Paul did here is he proclaimed, this is the good news. This is what's happened. The reality is a person who claimed to be the son of God and who proved that by miracles, reversing the effects of the curse, bringing healing to the sick and joy to the sorrowful and freedom to the captive. He, yes, was killed on a Roman cross, but three days later, he rose from the dead, proving that he is the God-appointed person by whom justice will be brought to everybody. Okay, and because that's, that's true, that changes everything for everybody because God commands everyone everywhere now to repent. Now, if you look at the response to um, this message in Paul's audience, you can predict that it would be pretty similar to response people would give you if you were to give, share this message in most public forums here today. What is the response? Well, when some people heard about the resurrection, this is verse 32, some heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. <laughs> one, one translation said they sneered. That's a pretty much a guaranteed response. Others and it's hard to tell whether they're actually interested in hearing him again or this is just a kind of polite way of saying, talk to you later. Right. Some sneered. Some said, we'll hear you again later. They postponed. But others joined him and believed. Now, why is it so hard for, why would some justice and, and trying to solve the problems of inequity, but when it really comes down to grounding that justice, is there really a universal right and wrong? And after all, if the worldview that's true, that this, this universe is merely uh, a combination of molecules, then, then one billion years from now, it doesn't matter whether today you killed someone or saved someone's life. It's all going to just be completely gone. On the other hand, if there is coming a day when every deed will be brought to judgment, and when a verdict is made about every human being, then everything that your heart tells you matters, matters. Right and wrong, justice and injustice, life and death. These are not just blips on, on the incomprehensible, timeless scale of a, of a cycle of universe. This history is going somewhere. Now, if... Why is this ever good news? Why would this be good news? Why would, why would it be good news to say that God has appointed a man to judge all the earth? Why would this not just be terrifying? Well, it would be terrifying if the person who stands at the end of the universe 
was an absolutely righteous God who would not, an absolute righteous, unforgiving God. It would be terrifying if that God were a God who didn't have morals, who didn't have a right or wrong, because that would just perpetuate the problem. But if the person who, is, who stands there at judgment day was a person who bears in his body scars because he was taking upon himself our sin. If that's the case, then the news that he is the judge is the best news ever because that's the news that by transferring our trust to him, by swearing off allegiance to whatever has captured our hearts that is actually enslaving us and putting our allegiance on him, then that means that that is salvation. That's why the gospel, the news that Jesus is the judge of all the earth is good news because he is the only judge that can pay for your sins and my sins and stand in our place, which is what he did at the cross. And that is the essence of the gospel. It's that God has come to us. Yes, we're everyone seeking after God. Yes, we're, we're reaching after him. Yes, we're kind of, we're grasping after him. But the, that's not the gospel. The gospel is God is reaching for us. And he has, and he has found us by coming to becoming in the person of Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus said in Mark chapter 1, here is the gospel. The kingdom of heaven has come to you, so repent and believe it. Now, it could be this morning that you're kind of figuring this out for the first time. And if that's the case, I would love to be able to talk to you and answer any questions you have. Or it could be that as a Christian, you simply want to be able to tell this better. You want to be able to share this, the Christian message more effectively. What, what both both of you need to do, and all of us need to do, is get a closer and deeper glimpse of Jesus and him crucified. Paul said in the book of Galatians, he said when he preached to people, he would present the reality of the crucified king of the world. Why? Because only that can melt your stubborn resistance, and only that, my friend, can ignite your heart and expand your mind and open your mouth to preach the gospel. Would you bow your heads? thought of sharing the gospel, the, the Christian message in a world that doesn't, uh, doesn't share many of the values that the gospel teaches may be intimidating to you. But my friends, if, if God captures your heart with the love and beauty of Jesus Christ, it will, it will open your mouth. It will set your tongue loose. But the question we need to consider is, is our heart is it captured by that glory? Have you thought long and hard about what it means that Jesus is your king? That you can trust him to obey you? That whatever he's asking you to do, no matter how hard it seems, you can trust him because he did something for you that you can never do for him. He, he died for you. You can trust someone like that. hope that you do if you're not and if you have I pray that you trust him more deeply our father I pray that you'd please continue to do the work in your hearts that you've in our hearts that we you've promised to do through your word I pray that 
uh, this word, the essence of what Christians believe and proclaim would, uh, would have a life of its own inside of us. That would bring out fruit and true evidence that your spirit is at work among us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.